It was late spring, and the mother duck watched patiently over her eggs. And one at a time, her ducklings finally began to emerge. However, there was one egg, a little different in size, in color, that still remained. And finally, it began to move. What hatched was a large, strange, discolored bird. And from the moment that little hatchling ventured into the farmland, oh, it learned of the cruelty of the world because the other farm animals had nicknamed him the Ugly Duckling. And they told him that he would always be unloved and unwanted and deeply hurt. The Ugly Duckling ran away and he spent a lonely year hiding in the forest. And many days he would peek out trees and he would see the swans gliding on the lake that was nearby and how he wished he could be like them. Something beautiful, something wanted. After a year of hiding, the ugly duckling couldn't bear his isolation anymore and he decided to end his life. But rather than be persecuted by the cruel farm animals once again, the ugly duckling decided that if he were to end his life, he would do it at the mercy of the swans. And so trembling, the duckling ventured out onto the lake and he slowly drifted towards the center where the swans would congregate. But to his surprise, well, they neither attacked him nor drove him away. Instead, the swans welcomed him into their flock. And unable to really fathom exactly what in the world was happening, the duckling looked down into the water and for the first time caught a glimpse of his own reflection. And what he saw, well, shocked him. He was no ugly duckling. He was a swan. And for the longest time, he had been lied to deceived. The cruel world had confused him to the point of death, but in the lake's reflection, for the first time, the ugly duckling found truth. And you know, truth is a powerful thing. Truth will take those on the verge of death and give them new life. And when we look into the reflection of God's word, we will find the truth of who we really are. In fact, when we even search through the gospels, when we study through them, the good news of Jesus, we'll see how we're even truly meant then to live. Because the story of the Bible is that we're all ugly ducklings as a result of our sin. But that God is able to take our ugliness and make something beautifully new from it. Like an ugly duckling that finds new life as a swan, we get this second chance at life 
as a result of Christ. 1 Corinthians, I'll show you on screen, you don't have to flip there, but 15 verse 22 says, in Adam, who we are all descendants of, says all of us die. In the same way though, in Christ, all of us will be made alive again. And you know, the idea of being made alive or giving us new life is this really important distinction that scripture makes. Because the Bible isn't just simply a book that encourages us to live better lives or to follow a bunch of religious rules that might fix us or get us into God's good graces. The story of the Bible is one of finding new life. Because Jesus didn't just come to fix our problems. He came to change our life. And that was the surprise twist of the first miracle we find in Matthew chapter 9. See, word had spread quickly that Jesus was back in town And in the cool of the morning, the people rummaged through the produce. They weighed up the protein that they would be consuming later on that day, as in the marketplace was a buzz with rumors of where Jesus might be staying. And what a difference just a few days can make. Because if you were with us last week, We watched the scene unfold in Matthew chapter 8 as Jesus made his way across the Sea of Galilee where he healed this man that the locals only knew as Demon Dan. And after such a, a remarkable miracle, the townspeople all came out there to the lakeshore and they said, you can't stay here. And now, Fast forward a few days and eight miles across the lake in a town called Capernaum, and the only thing anyone wants to know is where is he staying? We want to get there. And so by mid-morning, well, nearly everyone, even close to the neighborhood, had descended upon and then crowded in to this small little home. And Jesus began to teach since a crowd had showed up. But there were five guys who were late to the party. See, four of them had been originally part of the swarm of people that had made their way up the hill to this address. But they had a friend who they, they knew he couldn't miss out on this. And so they took a slight detour and they showed up on his front porch and paralyzed Pete was sitting there in his normal spot, outside the screen door, next to that potted plant on the same old mat he had always been confined to. And before Pete even had a chance to consent, his four friends had picked up each a corner of the mat. They, they lifted him up and they just began to carry him towards that small house with the hope, the faith even, that Jesus could heal their crippled friend. Jesus was already well into his sermon by the time they arrived. 
And, and there were so many people present that they were pouring outside of the doorway. The windows had been opened so that small crowds of people could gather around just to try to get a glimpse of Jesus, just maybe to hear a few of his words. And I imagine with sweat now beating from their foreheads and a lower ache in their backs, the four friends found the staircase at the rear that would lead up to the roof of the house which in these small Middle Eastern homes were these flat, stuccoed roofs, with stuccoed with dried mud and branches. And as they reached the top and they set Pete down for just a moment, one of the friends put a finger to his lips, and they all listened for the muffled words. And they guessed the spot that Jesus may be standing directly under, and they begin to scratch away at the stuccoed roof. And to the horror of the homeowner, <laughs> a patch of sun began to peek through his ceiling, and it grew larger, pieces of it falling onto the people who had been smashed in like sardines below. And without asking for any permission at all, his friends had lowered down paralyzed Pete right at the feet of Jesus. And everyone was all a little stunned, but no one had to guess the request. See, at first sight of the shriveled legs and the mat, well, everyone was well aware of the need and so in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, it says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. Well, that was a twist the crowd didn't see coming. You see, this guy needed his legs healed, and Jesus gave him forgiveness. And Jesus was highlighting a greater need of humanity here. More than just being healed or having our problems solved, we need to be forgiven. Because new life begins with the forgiveness of sin. The Bible tells us that we're all paralyzed by sin. The first page of the Bible tells the story of, of how God made us to be in perfect relationship with him. But by page three, sin had messed all of that up. Sin had paralyzed us from being with God because a holy God cannot tolerate nor be in the presence of sin. And so then page after page after page of the Old Testament tells of how God's people tried and tried to get better at not sinning. But no matter how hard they tried, well, they always just remained like ugly ducklings. Because the ugliness of their sin just kept rearing its ugly head. 
And it proved impossible to live so perfectly that they could restore that perfect unity and relationship that they once had with God. And this is why God made a plan. Not just to fix us, but to make us anew. And the entire Old Testament then points to it. And the New Testament opens with a manger scene, with God's plan inside it. Because God sent his son, Jesus, to do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves. And Jesus took care of our sin once and for all by offering us a way of forgiveness. He allowed himself to take our place in paying the pain for sin, which is death. It's why as a savior, he was willingly, he willingly allowed himself to be nailed on a cross And now, by placing our faith in him as Savior, through this forgiveness of sin and restored relationship that we now have with God, the Bible claims that we are given new life. It's why in Romans 6, 23, it says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you know, in the story there in in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus actually, if you read through it, he actually does go on to, to heal the legs of paralyzed Pete. Just to sort of prove to the crowd there that he did in fact have the same power and authority as God himself. But, you know, concerning those, those miracles, I think it was really actually to Pete's advantage that he knew he was helpless to help himself. And the Pharisees were all hot and bothered because, about this miracle because they didn't share that same point of view. See, they thought that they could become so good at following the law that they could rid themselves of sin on their own. Which is what led Jesus just a little bit, a little later on in verses 16 and 17 to share a couple of analogies. And he speaks of trying to patch worn clothing with unshrunk pieces of cloth, but it was common knowledge that that new patch would just eventually shrink and rip away, making an even bigger tear than there was before. And he also mentions aging new wine in old wineskins, but everybody knew, well, those wineskins wouldn't last. They'd begin to crack, and they would begin to leak. And so in both of those cases... What's described is just simply some temporary fixes rather than permanent ones, which is the only thing that the Pharisees were really capable of by trying to earn their own way to God. See, they may have been doing a lot of morally good things. 
And so as a result, you know, they might even have, it, made him, it might have made them feel closer to God. Oh, but they always just remained ugly ducklings. Because they were helpless to save themselves, just as the Bible says that we are as well. And so God in his word will always call us to Jesus, just as Jesus would call his followers to him, which leads us to the next story. In Matthew 9, if you go to verse 9 there, it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Now, if you were a good Jewish citizen following Jesus at the time, <laughs> this is where he probably would have lost you. Because tax collectors weren't only known as being corrupt and sinful, but they were viewed as traitors to their people. The Jewish nation was under Roman rule, which they despised. And Rome was very efficient in collecting taxes. They would actually recruit Jewish people to collect taxes from their own people with the incentive that Rome only required a flat rate. And so as a tax collector, you could charge whatever handling fee you wished to on top of that. And you would have the full backing of Roman soldiers. And so tax collectors like Matthew were able to get filthy rich off of the extortion of their own people. Oh, and I would imagine that as Jesus approached this tax-collecting booth, Matthew probably developed a bit of a lump in his throat, thinking, I'm in trouble. And I bet the disciples' eyes got real big, thinking, aha, justice. Get him, Jesus. I wonder even if this moment was especially personal for a few of the disciples. Because, you know, Peter, James, and John were actually all from this area. And so it is entirely possible that Matthew had been collecting their taxes. This could be the guy that had been robbing them for years. And this is the guy that Jesus invites into their small group. And it goes to show a really unique thing about Christian community. It is perhaps the only place where to be qualified to get in, you have to know you're unqualified. And that seemed to be the case, apparently, with Matthew, even all of his other buddies, because of what we read next. In verse 10, it goes on and it says, later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. 
But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. See, Jesus was hanging out with Matthew and his friends because they were sinners and they knew it. The Pharisees were sinners too. They just refused to acknowledge. Jesus says, listen, I can't help those who don't think they need help. And in this scene, we're reminded in this new life that we have with God that he has given us a new mission. People are sick with sin. And we are to show them to the doctor. And in order to point people to Jesus, you know, all we really have to do is just simply extend the same kind of love to others that God has shown us. And it's the type of love that we see Jesus extending here in this passage. You see, the way that Jesus loved was always a perfect balance between grace and truth. Jesus shows Matthew and his tax-collecting friends both. He showed them incredible grace because it didn't matter to Jesus that others maybe viewed them as scum or they were the most unlovable of society. He ate with them when no one else would, regardless of whatever sin they had in their life. And yet, we also see that he loved them enough to share the truth with them. Because you'll notice he did not pretend that the sin was okay or that it wasn't a problem. No, he actually sort of announces, hey, these people are sick. They need a doctor. Jesus says, luckily, you've got one in me. I, uh, I tend to think of God's love a bit like we may think of a rubber band. A rubber band, um, really, if you think about it, it serves its purpose through tension. If you don't pull on one side or the other, it's actually really useless. And the same can be said of grace and truth. It can be a little useless to others without the tension of both. Because when we give people truth without grace, it's rarely helpful. It's why when someone might stand on a street corner and yell at others, you're all sinners and you're going to hell doesn't normally yield fantastic results. 
And it's because truth without grace doesn't really allow people to see God for who he really is. Nor does it really show them how God really feels towards them. But grace without truth, well, it isn't very loving either. See, if I were sick and you knew the cure and you spent nearly every waking hour with me because you just for me so much, after I pass away, don't try to convince my family that it was loving to never share that cure with me. Where there is no grace, or where there is grace and there is no truth, the sin in our life never tends to be confronted or dealt with. And we begin to live much more like the world would have us live as opposed to the way that God actually wants us to live. And so we will always need God's truth to identify what's wrong. And we will need God's grace to fix the problem. So despite what culture may say, you know, our world does not need any less truth or any less grace What it needs is the perfect tension of both, which we see in God's love for us, just as Jesus would extend in this passage. It's our new mission of pointing people to Jesus by extending the kind of love that he has already shown us. And because of the way that God loves, when we accept this new life, God says, we are his. And so Jesus travels a little further into the chapter and a large crowd gathers around him, people sort of pressing in on all sides, just trying to get near him. And it says that there was a woman who had been suffering with a sickness for 12 years and she snuck up behind him and she touched just the edge of his robe because she thought, if I, if I can just simply touch him, I can be healed. And Jesus knew that she had done it. And before she was able to slip back out of the crowd, it says in Matthew 9.22 that Jesus turned around And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. And what a moment that must have been for her. See, Matthew is sure to tell us that the sickness involved the hemorrhaging of blood, which meant for 12 long years, She had been ostracized from the rest of society. Jewish law stipulated that she would have been ceremonially unclean, which meant she couldn't participate in Jewish life there at the temple, nor could anyone touch her or get near her. And so her social life had ended 
12 years ago. She's been living in isolation ever since. And if you were, according to the law, considered unclean, well, whenever you got into the proximity of others, you were required to shout a warning and say, unclean, unclean, just so that others would know not to come anywhere near you. It's why she had tried to go unnoticed in this crowd. It's because she wasn't allowed to be there. And after being deserted by friends and family, no human touch, maybe no friendships, can you imagine what it must have felt like for her when Jesus called her daughter? When no one else wanted her, Jesus stood up in front of all of these people and he basically proclaims, she's mine. See, belonging is God's gift to us. You can write that in your notes. You may have noticed too that when paralyzed Pete was healed, who was also an outcast of society, Jesus calls him child. As if to say, hey, Pete, your sins are taken care of. You're going to be part of my family now. I, uh, I read in a book, it was by John Ortberg. It's, the book is called The Me I Want to Be. And in it, I love the way in which he portrays sort of belonging and feeling a part of God's family. And he writes of a conversation between God and his angels, And he writes, one day, God says to the angels, I have an idea. I'm going to create the family. An angel asks, what is it? Oh, I'm very excited about this idea, God says. Of course, I'm excited about all of my ideas. One of the great things about being God is you just never have a bad idea. But this one (laughs) is special. Family is going to be the way I connect people in love. And it will work like this. Adults will sign up to take care of a tiny little stranger. Well, are they going to get paid, the angel asks? No. That little stranger is actually going to cost them a lot of money. And not only that, but the little stranger won't even be able to talk at first. It will just cry and scream, and you will have to guess why. (laughs) It will make you lose sleep. It will make messes all the time that you have to clean up, and it will be utterly vulnerable. You have to watch that kid 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then when it's two, That little stranger is going to be able to say words like no and mine, and it will throw tantrums. And then I'm thinking about inventing puberty. I'm not so sure about that one yet, but if I do, they will get these strange things called hormones, and they will go crazy. Odd things will happen to their bodies. They'll get pimples. Their voices will crack and their limbic systems will melt down. And then 
they will grow up. And just when they are mature and beautiful and interesting and able to contribute, they will move away. God says, that's the idea. What do you think? The angels shuffle around and they look at their... Who's going to tell them? They think... Lord, who would sign up for that? Why would they do it? And here's where God gets really excited. They won't even know why. They'll just look at that little body, those little hands and feet, and they will think that this tiny little stranger is beautiful, even though he looks like every other baby, and all babies look like Winston Churchill. And then that little stranger will smile at them and they will think they have won the lottery. That little stranger will say, Dada and Mama. But it will say Dada first because daddies are so self-sacrificial and noble and how I love them. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. But moms are good too, God says. So it will say dada and mama, and then those little arms and hands will open up and reach out and wrap around that neck, and it is going to feel to that grown-up that for the first time, now they understand why arms and hands were created. What it's really going to be all about is just grace, God says. Children, the new generation, will learn that they are prized and belong before they have ever done a single thing to earn it. And the old generation will learn that when they give, they will receive. When they give the most, they receive the most. And then one day, God says, I will tell them, human race, I am your father and you are my daughter. You are my son. And they will get it. And they will be undone. Belonging to God's family is such an incredible thing. God says, hey, hey, he, she, oh, they're mine. We are his. And when defining this new life we have with God, we'll also find that God gives us a new perspective. Matthew shares this story then of a couple blind men who were quite literally given a whole new perspective on life by Jesus. In Matthew 9, verse 29, it says that Jesus, he touched their eyes and, he, and said, because of your faith, it will happen. And then their eyes were opened and they could see. And Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they went out and they spread his fame all over the region. And I love that. Jesus says, hey, uh, let's just keep this one between us. But after Jesus had done such an incredible thing in their life, oh, they couldn't help but share the joy and the excitement of what he had done. We see it often. We're not quite sure. It's anyone's guess why Jesus would often say this to people that he healed. 
Some would say that it's because he knew exactly the timing of his death and maybe he just didn't want to speed up that timeline. I'm not too sure, but whatever the case, beginning to live with this newfound joy and excitement as a result of what John was just something that even Jesus came to expect. Maybe in a similar way that a person might come very close to death and then get a second chance on life and how that changes their view of the world. It reminds me of an older gentleman who was small and and frail and he was driving down the highway in his old Volkswagen bug when all of a sudden a group of really tough bikers, a whole gang riding a pack surrounded him and they forced him over to the side of the road. And they dragged him out of the car and the leader stepped up to him and with the edge, the end of a baseball bat, he took it and he drew a circle in the dirt around the guy. And he said to the old man, now you stand and stay inside that circle. Well, the frail looking older guy was Stunned, visibly shaken up as he stood now inside of his circle. And he watched as the leader of that gang then took that baseball bat and he went over there and he smashed the headlights out on that car. And he then looked over at the old guy and the old guy had a smile on his face. Well, that really frustrated the biker. And so he then took that bat and he threw it through the windshield of the car. And then he looked back at the old man and he was still smiling. Well, now he was really angry. And so he took that bat and he got up on the hood of the car and he just went flailing away, just caving the whole thing in. And then he looked over at the man and he was still smiling. And so he got down and he went over and he got in the old man's face and he said, what do you think you're smiling about? And the old man looked at him and said, I stepped out of the circle three times. (laughs) And I love the story because it reminds me that how I react to people And circumstances is purely dictated by perspective, isn't it? And when it comes to our relationship with God, we should have such a perspective of joy and excitement over what God has done in our life that no one can take that from us. I want to share, just to wrap up, a couple of deep all right, deep and profound verses that the Apostle Paul would write to us that I think best illustrate the unique perspective that we have as a result of knowing our sins are forgiven, that we're called to a new mission, and that we belong to God's family. The first is Romans 8.28. He writes, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And man, if we could just keep that perspective, oh, how that would affect 
the way that we view and react to the world. And it doesn't always mean, of course, that we're going to like or that we're really going to understand how in the world something might actually be working for the good of God's purposes. But we can trust God through it. Because for those of us in a relationship with him, you know, we know a few things that the world may not know. The first is that God is in control. Listen, this world may be filled with, and always will be filled with all sorts of tragedy and sorrow, which is the effect of sin in it. But God is still sovereign and always present and always has the authority to do whatever, whenever he sees fit. The second thing we know is God is at work. Because we don't serve a God who is distant or uninvolved, but one who is always working in the hearts of people, even sometimes maybe behind the scenes when we are not even aware of it. And the third, you'll have to add it in because it got cut off from the notes, but it's probably the most important, all right? God wins. At some point, this world is going to come to an end, but we already know the end of the story. And so if you've never read the book, spoiler alert, all right? God defeats Satan. Evil is overcome. God's justice, peace, and love will reign for all eternity. And here's the second perspective that, I'll, that Paul shares with us. It's found in Philippians 1.21. It's very short and sweet. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, you know, Paul would write this during some pretty difficult circumstances. He was in prison, unsure really if he would ever get out or if he was going to die there. And in the joy of his relationship with God, he basically states here, well, what do I have to worry about? If I go on living for Jesus, what an incredible new life this is. And if I die because of what I believe about Jesus, I still win. Eternity with God awaits me. You see, when you go from an ugly duckling to a swan, you see the world differently. And for us, the Christian, there is a newfound beauty in the knowledge of being loved and wanted by the God of the universe. And when we allow God to show us who we're truly meant to be, forgiven, on mission, and a part of his family, oh, the joy and the excitement of that should permeate every nook and cranny of our life. And so, Lord, that would be our prayer. God, that you would be in the midst of every area in our life.
such joy and excitement of knowing you and the way that you work, God, would be present. And not just the presence that we would know and feel, but that would be felt also by those around us. Tax collectors, even. Thank you, Lord, that we were once ugly ducklings. But God, that you have made us anew into something beautiful and a reflection of you. In your name, amen.